Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is session GPS TC306. It's called Private Link for Partners, in case that you might be missing which room you are. Today with me, I have Nick Matthews. He's a principal solution architect in AWS. I also have Jonathan Sander. He's the security field CTO from Snowflake, one of our partners. And I also have Paul Barber. He's the managing director, product architecture at Airlines Reporting Corporate. So uh, you'll be hearing from all of them during the presentation. My name is Laura Caicedo. I am from Colombia, South America, and I'm a partner solution architect here in AWS as well. So the agenda for today will be this, but uh, what I really want you to take out of this session are three things. The first one is what PrivateLink is, and either if you're a ISV or if you're a consulting partner or a customer, how can PrivateLink help you to enhance your offering? How can it make it more secure, uh, more flexible. Second, what's the architecture that you need in place from the provider and from the consuming point of view? What the designers are, the ones that you can start using today. And the third one is, we have a partner and a customer that will be speaking today. So I want you to hear a real use case, see that it's in production already and so it's there for you to use it. So let's get started. What is Prevalink? And before digging into what is Prevalink, I want to point the problem. So let's imagine that on your left, you have that solution that would solve everyone's problem. Like we all have money problems, we all have love problems, and then you find that magic hat that can solve any problem. And you start selling it and you start putting that service out there available for your customers. And of course, you as a customer say, well, I want to consume that service because I really have those type of problems. But the provider is giving me an API that is on the public internet. So I say, yes, I really want to consume that service, but I'm not very good, like all my data traveling into the public internet, right? So that's pretty much how service providers like SaaS companies, software companies, offer their service today. They put an API and they say, if you want to access, you can programmatically access to this API and you have to use it through the public internet, right? Today, security is one of the top concerns. We all are worried about our data, now we have DDoS, malware, SQL injection, so many type of different um, security issues that we don't want that traffic to travel into the public internet. So if this scenario, just traveling into the public internet, will be taken into the AWS, then we'll have something like this. You're the provider, you're the one with the magic hat offering, and you have the service running on an EC2, right? Then you put a internet gateway because you need to offer that on the public internet. And in order to make it work, you need an elastic IP, you need a public DNS, NAT gateway, whatever it is, right? And then as a consumer, you need to do exactly pretty much the same. You need to 
set up the internet gateway and all the traffic will travel into the public internet. But we already mentioned that that's not what we want, right? And you might be thinking, well, I know something called PPC peering. And you're right, PPC peering uses internal AWS backbone instead of the public internet. So you might be thinking, why not just do a BPC peering between the provider offering and the consumer offering? And that's right, it could be an option. What you need to do when you use the BPC peering is you need to set up a route table. You need to set up that route that points to the uh, older BPC. And it means that you have to do some kind of route table maintenance. Now, let's remember that your solution is super good, right? It's like the magic hat that not only one customer is going to consume, you will have many customers. So what happens when you start growing your business? You have customer B, customer C, and number of customers. Then your route table might get a problem. What if customer A and customer C have the same IPCID range, right? Then your route table won't work. You cannot put two routes for the same CIDR range in your route table. So this is where we hit the wall and we might realize that BPC peering, it's not a solution for this type of use cases, right? That's why we came with private link. With private link, um, you as a provider have your service running. On, in front of it, you're gonna put a network load balancer. That network load balancer will expose an endpoint, will be a DNS. And then as a provider on the other side, you will create a BPC endpoint. That BPC endpoint will connect to the DNS that was created by the NLB, by the endpoint at, at the provider side and it will use AWS backbone. It means that your traffic won't travel into the public internet. Now we are using AWS private links. And also the application at the consumer side will see the service of the provider in a private IP inside of the own BPC. So um, this guy will try to find the service in a private IP that is exposed by this BPC endpoint, right? So we'll dig into the architecture, but now let's talk about the benefits. So the benefits, you might be guessing some because I've talked briefly about security, for instance, simplify network management. We already talked about the route table maintenance, accelerate hybrid cloud migration. What happens if your customer uh, is on-premises? and then scalability. So let's see each one of them. Security. So when you do the connection using private link between the provider and the consumer, uh, you as a provider or you as a consumer are trusting the provider, right? I mean, you're creating a connection, but what if the provider gets hacked or what if the, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you, you don't know your provider very well. So that's why we introduced the one-way access. It means that only the consumer can get started the connection to the provider. The provider can start the connection. That's a, an extra layer of security. Then, as I already mentioned as well, 
you have a private IP, you will be consuming that provider service in a private IP inside of your own VPC. When you have the private IP on that endpoint, it means that underneath of it, you have a network interface. And when you have a network interface, you can create security groups. We'll be looking at it in the, in the future uh, slides. From the management point of view, now you can support overlapping addresses, right? You don't have to worry about the problem that we had uh, with BPC peering. <coughs> then scalability. Of course, your business has to grow. So now you can share the service to thousands of BPCs. And also, you can start growing your business. And if your consumer is on premises, they can use either Direct Connect or VPN to connect to the provider service that is running on AWS. So this sounds super good. Now let's dig into what you need in your VPCs in order to make it work. Now let's put the hat of the provider. So you're the one with the magic solution that wants to start selling uh, to everyone else. So let's go to basics before uh, that and let's cover what is a network load balancer. Network load balancer is a layer four load balancer. It works in a TCP protocol. Uh, it's a service that is managed by AWS. So if your solution has one customer today and tomorrow it has one million, then we'll manage the elasticity behind the network load balancer as well. It has a high throughput and a low latency. So it's, it's a good um, solution for you to put in front of your services. That's the first step that you need to do. You have your service running on that EC, in that EC2 instance. Now you need to put a network load balancer in front of your service. Once you put the network load balancer, you can create an endpoint. That endpoint gi will give you a DNS. In this case, for future reference, we have a DNS called happy DNS, right? So that's it pretty much. Now it will give you some configuration um, parameters like you can while these principles, if you know who your uh, customers are, you can accept uh, endpoint connections. So every time that someone tries to connect to the happy DNS, you will get a notification and then you can go and accept it. If you don't want to go and accept it manually, then you just whitelist everybody. And that's it. You're set up, you're ready for uh, consumers to start using your service. So from the consumer point of view, again, let's go to some basics. We have the Elastic Network Interface. This is a virtual networking card. It means that it has a MAC address, it has a private IP if you want. It can have an Elastic IP or public IP address as well. It can be owned by you. So when it's owned by you, it's when you launch an EC2 instance and you just attach the Elastic Network Interface to it, second one, depending on the instant type, or it could be managed by an AWS service. What it means? It means that some services, when they launch, they will put an Elastic Network Interface in your VPC, and it will be managed by the service. And this is the case of private link. We'll cover that in a future of, uh, slide as well. Also, you can apply security groups. Security group, it's a, a firewall that uh, lets you choose 
who can access to your, um, to your infrastructure using which IP, which protocol, who is allowing, who is allowed out. So when you want to access AWS services from your VPC, you have two ways. The first one is a gateway VPC endpoint. The second one, it's an interface VPC endpoint. Private link lives in the second one, in the interface VPC endpoint. I'm going to cover both for uh, reference and for you to see the difference. Gateway VPC uh, endpoint. So before, if you had a VPC and your services needed to access an S3 bucket, you needed to set up an internet gateway in order to that traffic to flow, right? To reach the S3 endpoint. Then we launch the S3 gateway endpoint. It means that you are configuring an endpoint, it's like an extra door in your VPC that will allow you to use AWS private backbone instead of flowing that traffic into the internet. What you have to do is you have to go to the route table and just set up the route. Now, everything that goes to the S3 endpoint will go through that VPC endpoint, that extra door, right? This service, it's, it's free. It doesn't need an internet gateway or NAT gateway or elastic IPs uh, if you don't want, and it gives you a robust access control. This service is available for S3 and DynamoDB, the uh, gateway. Then we have the interface VPC endpoints. So if you look to the service category, this is a screenshot of the console. When you go there and try to configure an interface endpoint, you will see this screen. And it says service category in here, and it gives you three options. The first one is an AWS service. The second one is find service by name. The third one is a marketplace service. So the second one, the find service by name, when you click there, that's where you will find the services that are offered by a third party. So in the example that we have been um, uh, doing in, the, in this, ex in this um, presentation, where you have that service, that magic hat service, and you publish it using a happy DNS, then this is where you will um, go, click, put that DNS, and that's how you will connect to that provider. Then we have the marketplace, so there's a ton of services that are already using private link in the marketplace. And then the first one is the AWS services. Why? Because some AWS services don't run inside of your own VPC. It means that private link will allow us to use the AWS backbone as well to connect to those services. So before we saw the gateway, S3 and endpoint, S3 and DynamoDB. Here we have the type interface. So we have another type of services like API gateway, um, like the EC2 API. We have SNS. Um, we also have the endpoints services hosted by another AWS accounts. So in this example, your SaaS provider, your software um, company, and then the ones that are offered in the marketplace. Those are the three types of private links that you can use today. So let's continue. Uh, as a customer, you want to connect to the Magic Hat solution using the Happy DNS. So what you need to do? The Happy DNS is running, it's different account. They are exposing a Happy DNS. What do you need to do? The first thing is 
create a BPC endpoint. That BPC endpoint will create an elastic network interface that will be managed by the service. Okay? That uh, will connect to the happy DNS. So that connection will be using AWS private uh, backbone. When you expose or when you create these endpoints, it will also create some DNS. It will create one regional uh, fully qualified domain name for the endpoint, and it will create one or more fully qualified domain names for each availability zones. You can set up your security groups in here, so you as consumer, you decide who has access to your services using which APIs, which protocols, all those are managed by you. And then if you enable private DNS in your account, then using Route 53, uh, you can create some alias. It means that instead of finding the service like in this big, long DNS, now you will find the service using the api.example.com, okay? So what's the uh, packet walkthrough? First of all, your client, you're, you're using uh, private DNS inside of your BPC, so your client will look for the service using the api.example.com. That api.example.com will resolve into the long DNS that we saw on the previous slide. That long DNS will solve into the private IP of the Elastic Network interface that was created by the service. That Elastic Network interface will forward the traffic to the endpoint that it's already connected. The connection was the first thing that we set up. And now when the traffic uh, arrives into the provider BPC, the network load balancer will do a source NAT, network address translation. Why? Because it needs to change the source IP because we support overlapping IP addresses for many customers, right? So when the traffic arrives to the service itself, to the EC2 instance that is um, hosting the service, it will see as if the um, sender would be the network load balancer. Then when it replies, then uh, the network load balancers will do the source not again, and then the traffic will be sent back to the uh, consumer. And now let's see the deployment types for that. Um, I will call Nick to the stage. And All right, thanks, Laura. No awesome. Uh, so now we've got a better idea of um, sort of the mechanics of how it works, difference between gateway and interface-based endpoints. And so let's, let's more look a little bit more architecturally around like if you're a provider or if you want to do this inside your own VPC, like sort of what are the architectures and sort of how do you glue this stuff together inside your environment? Uh, so generally speaking, there's sort of uh, two major use cases for a private link. One is if you're a SaaS provider, and we'll take a look at three different sorts of SaaS provider architectures that, you know, inside potentially your environment, uh, as well as in, inside your organization. So whether you're trying to share services, and this may be the more customer scenario, or if you're like a managed service provider and you're managing lots of customer accounts, you may have some sort of um, shared services VPC or provisioning services or things like that that you may want to use PrivateLink for in the managed service provider or in sort of customer examples. Uh, so if we start off, um, you know, and I got these words from our SaaS teams. I, you know, so they, they tell me these are the words they use and I believe them. Um, so silo, or you could say single tenant, 
is uh, typically what I'd call it, but you know. Um, so a single tenant or a silo model is this concept where uh, every time you have a new customer on your platform, um, you give them a new VPC. So you know, from an architectural pers perspective, it's very easy. It's a very easy story to your customers. You know, we deploy resources for you. They're isolated from everyone else's, and from a standpoint of that, it makes the customer conversation easier. Uh, unfortunately, it makes the backend deployment and sort of architectural choices harder for you because now you've potentially got a new VPC for every single one of your customers. And if you've got your special Magic Hat service everyone likes, um, that can be, I, I've worked with partners that have got thousands of VPCs uh, in this model. And so, um, you know, how can, we, how can we make this scale? Because especially in these scenarios when we're going through the, the customer sales process, um, customers will say, hey, is this my own dedicated infrastructure? And you say, yes, we're dedicating infrastructure for you. They find out and they go, oh, well, if it's just mine, can you just make it any IP address I want? Because I want to connect to it to a VPN, I want to connect to it through Direct Connect because it's my infrastructure, so can you do that for me? And now, so not only now you have lots of VPCs, but now customers want you to uh, make it their special address. And inside those VPCs, you probably have other uh, infrastructure. You probably have some management stuff, some provisioning uh, things, and so you may not want them to actually access the entire VPC. And so uh, how, do you, how do you maintain that access where you want to give um, specific IP addresses as well as sort of more granular access to that. Private link's a great option here. So uh, one customer can say, hey, I want this to show up on this address range. You create a separate VPC. You throw the network endpoints into there. And so now the customer thinks that maybe their web console is on uh, you know, their IP address range. They can come in over VPN or Direct Connect and it looks like your service is directly on their IP range and they can use our managed services for both Direct Connect and VPN uh, to come in. So that solves that sort of address problem. Um, and so it's sort of a, a neat way to solve that. Uh, in the sort of pool way, you've got one set of infrastructure that you manage. Uh, this would also be the multi-tenanted uh, example. Uh, so like the, in this model, you've got one set of infrastructure and lots of customers want to access that infrastructure. This is how AWS builds most of our services. We tend to do multi-tenanted uh, things. And uh, in this scenario, you create one network load balancer in front of that service. And the benefits are is if your customers still want that service to look like it's directly in their network, um, we have this, you know, so we actually built all this for our own use case. So customers wanted the EC2 API and load balancing APIs and KMS APIs directly in their VPC so they didn't have to go over the internet to access our APIs. And all our, ours are multi-tenanted like this. And we've got thousands of customers that all love the default 172.31 VPC. And so, you know, how do we give them all access to our service uh, at scale? And so uh, this is the exact same thing that we use. So if you have a multi-tenanted platform, um, you can extend your endpoints directly into all of those. From a security perspective, each one of these clients or customers knows that you're never gonna reach back into them and do bad things because the unidirectional access of private link prevents that. And so you've got this one-way sort of trust uh, and it makes that a simpler conversation. Uh, and so again, you can give each one their sort of private addressing, they can come in or VPN or Direct Connect, and now that public service is either directly in their private VPC or we'll also talk about how we can make that look for, for Direct Connect. Uh, and I've also seen this scenario where you build this multi-tenanted software, you come up with all the compliance requirements of like why your multi-tenanted software is super secure, and then some customer says, what if I give you a big bag of money and you just give me my own infrastructure? And, okay, deal. Um, and so now you have a second pair of infrastructure, maybe sort of, you know, for a very special customer, 
or just different deployment types or maybe a different new service that you're offering. Uh, and so it's sort of this bridge model where you're multi, mostly multi-tenanted or mostly uh, siloed, but you have this combination. And so, especially in this use case where you, maybe you had the multi-tenant scenario and you're not really set up to have lots of different sets of infrastructure and you have these sort of special requests come in, uh, you can use private link to then uh, extend those out and make those special requests easier for that, that maybe that special customer. Uh, another option here is if, uh, if you're on the marketplace, so if, you have, if you've built a SaaS and you can make an agreement with uh, the marketplace team to list your SaaS there, the next step is you can also, uh, as the part of the automated provisioning process, whenever you create the, uh, the SaaS, we can actually provision the uh, private link endpoints as for your SaaS so customers don't have to worry about that kind of thing. And so if you're on the, the SaaS marketplace, uh, you can work with the marketplace team. We handle some of the DNS things that are a little bit more manual if you don't do this. So it's sort of a nice benefit of marketplace if you guys are looking at that. And this is an example of that. So the, the normally the service base name is a aws.amazonaws.com. So it's not even your uh, URL. And so if, if you go through the vanity side of things, uh, you can get a vanity name for here, you know, example.com, and you can get that API or that DNS name uh, you know, through the marketplace offering. So it simplifies that for customers on both one, it's now your URL, as well as uh, the customers can more easily provision the DNS portion in their VPC. Uh, you know, if in the other use case where you've got sort of shared services, so um, here on the left, we've got the sort of consumer environment. In the middle, we've got a service we'd like to share. And so uh, we can, maybe that's uh, a Jenkins server or some API server that we'd like to share to multiple VPCs. Our developers, again, have chosen defaults because they, why would they care about VPC CIDR range, right? That's not their problem. Um, it became our problem, and, but now they all want to use the same Jenkins API. So we can drop that uh, network load balancer in front of Jenkins, and then we can share the Jenkins API directly into all the developer accounts. Uh, and if our uh, company acquires some other company and they also want to get to that cool Jenkins server or whatever it is behind that load balancer, uh, we can do that across accounts. And, and again, even if these two accounts don't fully trust each other, we've got a sort of a more granular security architecture here through PrivateLink. And so you can solve that problem. If maybe you have, uh, and I've seen this with some of the SaaS providers where, you know, you're building a SaaS, so you fully believe in SaaS, and you found out, like, I can actually build my SaaS faster if I use other people's SaaSes, maybe for billing or provisioning or lots of other things. And so even as a SaaS provider, you may want to absorb or use other people's private link offerings so that your service doesn't have to go over the internet, which means your customer conversations are simpler as well. Uh, so let's take a look at some of the design options here. The, the sort of reference architecture for this is, you know, up in the upper left, we've got the uh, provider VPC. Uh, we've got a load balancer there. Uh, you may notice that for this particular service, uh, we're only running two instances. And this region supports three availability zones. Um, and so typically what would happen is if we only place that network load balancer into two availability zones, then customers only have the option to choose those two availability zones. To, to get around that, what we do is we provision the network load balancer in every single availability zone. And then we enable cross-zone load balancing on the NLB. So now this means that we don't have to provision ourselves in every availability zone, and customers will have the choice of any availability zone to you actually use our service. And so in this scenario, the customers may be down in the bottom left if they're in AWS. So we drop the endpoints directly into their account or VPC. Uh, they would create a Route 53 alias because the DNS name is not super easy to work with. 
So if they want API at example.com to go to the, the endpoint, you would write a Route 53 alias to do that. And then if maybe the customer is on-premises, um, you have this option where either you or the customer create a separate VPC, you drop the endpoints of any site or range they want into that VPC, and then they can come in over VPN or Direct Connect to access that endpoint. And so, like this is an example of, we use this, um, there's another session uh, where we worked with like Bloomberg. So Bloomberg has a bunch of data that they want to share to financial customers. It's fairly sensitive for them, so no one really wants to access it over the internet. Um, a lot of people want to access that data on their own private IP address range, which overlaps quite a bit. So they did the same thing where most of their, their customers are actually on-premises, but most of them also have direct connects. So they can come in over direct connect and access this shared Bloomberg service. Um, so it was a cool use case in a different uh, session. Uh, if you want to look at that a little bit more, if you have on-premises, you can create this sort of uh, dedicated VPC just for the endpoints. Uh, and then you can come in over VPN. So that was actually uh, announced maybe three or four weeks ago. So that's a new thing, accessing endpoints over VPN, if you, if you ever ran into that restriction. Uh, you can also come in uh, natively over Direct Connect. Uh, and you go, okay, well, Nick, that sounds all well and good. Uh, what happens if like that doesn't necessarily meet all my requirements? What if network load balancer sort of isn't compatible with my thing, or uh, what are the other, what are so the, what's the wiggle room here? So let's get into some of the, the things we want to think about when we're designing a, an endpoint service uh, with a network load balancer. Uh, first is, you know, so Laura mentioned that uh, we're going to do a source net as traffic comes into the provider's VPC. So in that scenario, what we want to do is, uh, we want to make sure that that source IP doesn't mean anything to us. So if we're doing tenant-based billing or identification based on the source IP, like, that's not so awesome because everything's going to have the same IP address. So what you really want to do is have some application level control, either you know cookies or sessions or uh, certificates, those kinds of things to, to actually show, uh, show up in your logs or whatever you're doing for, for billing. Uh, if you actually do really, really want that source IP, you can enable proxy protocol. So proxy protocol version two is something you can turn on on the network load balancer. It sends this sort of type length value TLV with some special metadata as part of that. If you're using some of the uh, open source proxies like Nginx and HAProxy, uh, they can parse this. Otherwise, if this is going directly to your code, you might have to make some code changes to do this, but it is possible. So in this scenario, we, we just sort of show that, hey, from this IP address, it comes in, and then it gets natted to an IP address. And so that's the proxy protocol would have the true source IP there. Uh, the other one that we see quite often is SaaS providers say, hey, you know, we built this SaaS as a bit of an experiment or, uh, we, you know, we're still building the business around it. Um, and our customers are all over the globe and, all, and you guys have, what, 18 regions now? We didn't announce any more regions, right? I haven't been paying attention. Um, so we have like 18 regions or so and we didn't build our SaaS in every single region. So how do I help customers in other regions? And so now that we can do endpoints over VPN and it, we also enable, enabled it for cross-region peering simultaneously, uh, you can access these. Uh, we'll go over two different ways to do this. So in the scenario here, we've got the provider in the upper left, a consumer in the upper right, so that's just a normal, in the same region, uh, private link. And then what we'll do is we'll create a load balancer. So let's say this service up there is in Virginia and we want to access it from Europe, down below. So down in Europe, what we'll do is the provider will create a new VPC with a network load balancer. Now the network, network load balancer can target three different things. It can target an instance, which is sort of what most people do. It can do containers, cool, DevOps. Three, it can access uh, a private IP address. 
So you can target a network load balancer at a private IP address. And so in this model, what we'll do is we'll create a cross-region peering to the provider's VPC from this dedicated endpoint, and then we'll use IP address as a target on the network load balancer to access that service. And from there, now we have a network load balancer in the region where the customer is at. And so now we can do the, uh, you know, the, the endpoint service inside that local region. Uh, another way to look at this is if, uh, if you have this, again, now the provider's still on the left, a normal consumer is there on the right, uh, but again, our customer in Europe wants to access this service. Another way to do this is in Virginia, we create another VPC, we do a cross-region peering between the Europe VPC and our VPC, and then over cross-region peering, they can access that endpoint now. And so if you want to keep all those VPCs in the same region, that might be simpler than trying to keep you know, IP as a target. And so this is probably the way I would recommend, um, unless you have specific requirements for in-region uh, connectivity. I mean, we have to be a little bit careful with this, uh, particularly with the IP as a target, because if we're doing IP as a target, like the customer may think that service is local to that region. And so, you know, if, you know, Virginia has uh, some sort of intermittent servicing issue, but now you've now impacted customers in Germany based on the, you know, the, this region, you may want to be sort of just straightforward with that with customers. We can, because now we're sort of making it look like one region is a different. It's cool that we can do that, but we also have to watch out for those sort of cross region uh, impacts. Uh, the other one is uh, the NLB. Uh, a common thing I, I hear is one, either, hey, we're using classic load balancers or application load balancers, just, I'm not sure why we're using, but that's what we have, so what can we do? I also hear, we're using application load balancer for a very specific uh, feature. It's either SSL offload or layer seven based features. Um, and so what can we do? Uh, one is, you know, you can wait for NLB to get more features. We keep increasing features of the load balancing deep dive that was very good, um, so you can wait for those types of things. Uh, particularly for a lot of like proof of concept codes and those kinds of things, what I also see people do is they'll put a network load balancer in front of the application load balancer or the classic load balancer. Because we can use the IP address as a target, we can actually target the individual IP addresses of those load balancers. And there's a blog out there, if you look up static IP address for ALB, uh, one of our engineering, one, someone out of our engineering group wrote a Lambda function that basically just got, does a DNS lookup on the load balancer and you know, keeps the IP addresses in line with the TTLs of the DNS. So we effectively move the DNS of the application load balancer or classic load balancer into the network load balancer. Got that? <laughs> Clear as mud, right? Um, so it actually works, it's cool. We've got customers doing it. It gives you the NLB features in front of other load balancers. And so uh, at, this, at this point, you can do the SSL offload or the layer seven features or if you just got some existing load balancers, do that there. And then from there, you can create all your endpoint services out to the different locations. Uh, one of the other things we hear about is, you keep talking about load balancers, what if my service isn't really all that friendly without, you know, with load balancers? What if it's a database? What if it's, uh, what if I've got some sort of caching or other sort of load bit feature there? Uh, so you can do some different things. Um, for example, you could create, if, if your client really wants to see two separate resources as opposed to one load balancer that which goes to two resources, you could put one load balancer in front of each resource. You want to be careful with that because, you know, uh, we've got limits around the amount of load balancers you can create. So I typically see this around like load, uh, like database cases where we know we're going to like two or three or four. If your service, you know, scales out to like 100, then you may not want to create one NLB for each one of those. Um, but what you could do is maybe create 100 listeners, which go to 100 different locations. 
Um, and so 8,000 goes to one, 8,001 goes to the second one, 8,002, et cetera. And so you use different listening ports on the NLB to go to different places. Um, I think this works, again, smaller scale. At larger scale, you probably want to follow the general best practices as opposed to all these sort of you know, workarounds that we can do. Uh, the other one here is about services that initiate connections to uh, clients. Because we've got that one-way connection from the client to the server, sometimes people go like, hey, I've got this provisioning service that needs to reach out to lots of VPCs. Um, we can't do that. Uh, so, and this one's more, again, of a tentative use case. You have to be a little bit careful with it. Uh, but what we can do is, in this model, on the left here, we've got the provider VPC, and on the right, we have the consumer. So we create, oh, I didn't want to do that. So what we've done here, oh, sorry, the, the little blue lines are a little bit hard to see. That didn't copy over well. Essentially, what we've, got, we've done here is we've created an uh, endpoint into the consumer's VPC, but then we created a Bastion server in the client's VPC. We put a load balancer in front of the Bastion server, and then put the endpoint service for the Bastion service into our provider's infrastructure. And so now we've got a two-way private link, and so we've sort of created a two-way uh, communication between that. Again, not every client is going to want to do that, but for, depending upon your architecture and your use case, uh, that might get you over the hump or might solve some problems. Um, if you have this problem at scale, you're, you're probably better off talking to uh, our product teams and giving us that level of feedback and sort of having that conversation because it's still a fairly limited uh, conversation. So uh, I think we've talked a lot about like the, the architectural stuff, the tech, tech stuff, uh, but what, at least what I've seen with all the partners is understanding like the value to customers and the, the way that you train your salespeople and like the, the, just getting lots of other people to understand this because um, you know, I've been a network engineer for a while and this doesn't really closely resemble anything on-premises. Like, just making a service appear in other places sort of magically, but it only lives in one and some combination of source net and people say like, why would I want to do that? And if it's, already on IP, if it's already on a public IP address, why am I doing all this work? And there's, a, there's quite a bit of confusion, which I think, you know, we've, we've put out a lot of technical information, but I think a lot of it's also sort of non-technical too. Um, and so uh, I'd like to invite uh, the guy from Snowflake here. Uh, sorry, Jonathan, Jonathan. It's been, uh, sorry, my mind's melted from, from reInvent. Uh, okay. So Jonathan's here, and we're gonna talk about the Snowflake's use case. Thank you, Great. Nick. The guy. All right. So, um, first of all, let's tell you what Snowflake is, in case you don't know. Um, we are a data warehouse built for the cloud. Um, when Laura defined the problem that Private Link solves, um, I think we are exactly the worst case scenario for that. Because if you don't know what a data warehouse is, it only gets better as you put more and more data into it. It's where you put literally everything. Um, I'm the security guy that goes out and talks to customers and partners and tries to help them understand how we've secured this service. And I don't know if you can see my eye twitching when I talk about putting all of this data into this big database that you're then gonna expose to the public internet. Um, it doesn't sound like the, the best practice, right? To actually put all that data out there without some level of protection. And so that's why we're a really happy consumer of uh, all these protective services that uh, AWS has given us. Um, so I think the easiest way to understand uh, the way the conversations typically go with customers and with our own staff, to Nick's point, is that you have a ton of information you're going to put into Snowflake. That's how you're going to make it work best for you. 
right? And if this were a marketing thing, I could talk about separating storage and compute, and I could talk about all these other things that Snowflake does. But for me, it's about the security and the privacy of the communication to keep that all secure. And Private Link literally solved a last mile problem for our customers and then also for our staff to talk to customers about how they were going to protect things. Um, because they were able to get data you know, into and out of AWS in a protected way, but they couldn't talk to a SaaS service like us without exposing themselves back out to the public internet. Right? So um, the timeline, actually, where did we go? Oh, actually, I, I was talking to the wrong slide that whole time. So yeah, so this is, this is what Snowflake is. Here we go. Uh, we've got the three layers. You've got compute. You've got the services built on top of it. This is, how, this is where you put all that data, um, and this is how we offer it as a SaaS service to the world. Right? Um, so the timeline for adoption, last year, um, right here, um, was launched private link, and we were on board from the very beginning because we knew we had this problem. Um, and by the way, we actually knew we had this problem even before this was launched because we were already consuming the S3 gateway endpoints um, at that time, right? So we already knew the value of private communication to all of our S3 resources that we were using for storage and staging and everything else that we do with data that's going in and out and being serviced by the platform. Um, the next thing that we did was we made sure that all of that adhered to our regulatory burdens. Um, as you can imagine, uh, if you have a customer who's coming to us who's going to be putting PCI data or health data in there that's going to be covered by HIPAA, um, or you know our friends in the federal government, or any of you out there, of course you're not going to raise your hands, um, but uh, you know the people who need to have these protections needed to understand that this communication was also going to meet their needs. Once we were sure with that. Um, we were moving on to the case of would Private Link give us ultimately what the value it would, uh, it said it would, protecting all of the communication off from being on the public internet. Right? That's what we wanted to make sure it did not do. Um, and as soon as um, we had that, we then were able to go out and start communicating to customers about it and saying, you should feel comfortable. Right? You should be able to feel comfortable putting all this data in here because we can give you a route to talk to it that will never expose it to the, to the public internet at any point, right? So where does that leave us? Um, right now, um, we have 20 plus customers running um, with private link established to Snowflake. Um, that's actually not the whole number of customers we have hooked up with Snowflake, though we actually have almost 40 um, private links established into the Snowflake service, but some of them are in the middle of migration, right? So they're still going, uh, you know, going at it, getting their data into the system, learning how to use it. Um, it's definitely performing at scale. Um, in fact, a lot of times uh, what's happened is the customer's security team has forced them to do private link, and then the users come on board to the private link connected Snowflake service, and they don't even know it's there. Right? So they just do their load testing, they just run against it as they normally would to do their benchmarks to understand if their workloads are gonna work, and they do. Um, so they don't actually even understand that that's working, except that the security guy stopped yelling at them. Right? That's, that's the only thing they really can tell has happened. Um, so when I talk to a customer, um, or one of our partners um, about how this works, this is the picture that I pull up. 
Um, and you know, this looks a little bit like the pictures that Nick and Laura were showing as well, right? Uh, but I see private link as being part of a healthy breakfast, right? It's not just the only thing that gets you private communications. It's the thing that gets you that last mile from your resources, your customers' resources, um, in their AWS VPC through to our SaaS service, right? Uh, but, um, you know, lately I just had to edit this slide to Nick's point because uh, we had to include having VPN as an option here. We used to have a straight line right from Direct Connect through um, to our service, but now we have the bifurcated line because you can also go over VPN. Um, and typically what happens is all the way over on the left there, you've got all of the ways that our customers want to consume um, our services from on-prem. Right? And that's a very typical use case for us. Because if you think about data warehousing, typically what's happening is they're not going from a data warehouse in the cloud to our data warehouse in the cloud. They're going from some gigantic on-prem system um, that they've been maintaining, and then they're shifting that load into the cloud to run on Snowflake. Um, and so that means a lot of the consumption of the data, the reporting, the ways they've been working with it, all still live on-prem. Now, that's not exclusively the case. You can also see they might have some of that stuff already lifted and shifted um, into their VPC as well. And either way, that's okay, right? Because essentially, as long as they can get themselves from on-prem privately into their VPC, and then use private link from that VPC to our service, they're going to ensure no internet traffic, and they're going to ensure that it's been secured the whole way, right? Um, so the last thought here, uh, is the, you know, the only challenges, right, if I'm speaking to the partners in the office who might, uh, or the partners in the audience who might be thinking about this, the only challenges we typically have with this are, in fact, one thing that Nick mentioned, um, getting our own people to communicate about this well, right? Because it is a complex and strange topic. Um, and it's sometimes hard to tell them these things and then have them say, okay, well, you know, now private link solves all the problems. Um, doesn't quite, you need to use, that's why this picture exists. Um, you need to use all the tools that AWS has given us um, in order to actually solve this problem. Uh, and then the other challenges we have are just uh, the strangeness that can exist in those customer VPCs sometimes, right? Everyone's got their own way of doing DNS, everyone's got their own routing challenges. Um, obviously introducing something as powerful as private link solves one problem, but then pops up others uh, when you're trying to work out exactly how you're going to route that and name that and get it all to work the way that is necessary for everybody to get what they need. All right. um, but those are small challenges, and you're going to have those challenges with or without private link. Um, with private link, at least you're going to have those challenges and have secure traffic. All right. So that's all I've got. Uh, I'm going to bring up Paul, and Paul's going to tell us a little bit about how they do this at should I say ARC or should Arc. I say? Yeah, that's, that's ARC. The easy okay, way. all right, there yeah, we go. Yeah, that's how we do it at ARC. Thanks, John. All right. Appreciate it. I'm just so glad I didn't fall off the back of that stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. So I'll start off by talking a little bit about who we are. A lot of you have used our services. You didn't realize you've used our services, but likely if you got on a plane to get here, uh, you in some form uh, used our services. So we have really two main things that we do that make ARC what it is, okay? So the first one is, it's in the name, right? We're a reporting corporation, uh, and we provide reporting for all the U.S. carriers, travel agencies, all of that. The travel agencies are sort of, you know, why ARC exists at the end of the day. So anytime you book through Expedia, your corporate travel department, anything like that, any agency in any of its forms, 
your settlement comes through us. So after you make that payment, we're responsible for moving that money from point A to point B. So that is a very rich set of data that we get. Uh, this is where I'm you know, fortunate to be from Kentucky because when I put that world's most comprehensive air ticket data up, information up there, I can take some bourbon over to our security team over in Washington, D.C. and kind of get them settled down a little bit because people don't realize that is what we have, right? So anytime you fly on that U.S. carrier, you pay for that through a travel agency. We get that data. We report against that data. We provide that data both to the carriers and those travel agents in some form or fashion. So those are the really two big pieces, and that's where Snowflake's been a great partner for us and where we established that relationship. Uh, so as we modernized, which we kicked off about a year ago, we wanted to start, we were very traditional. The airline industry in itself, the travel industry in itself, is going through a lot of modernization. That includes us. We want to be out in front of that. And that's where partnerships like this exist. That's where our partnership with AWS uh, began. It's where our partnership with Snowflake. So that's where Private Link gets into us as we get into this $90 billion worth of stuff that we move around. And uh, Jonathan hit on it very well. We, that's a lot of rich data in there. It's data we need to protect. So for us to get really comfortable with what we're going to do with that data, how we're going to shift it around, when we sort of got introduced into Private Link and what that would mean, uh, this was a key part of our decision in getting really comfortable with how we manage in this world. So we're coming from the customer end, but you can imagine as we have carriers, we have Expedia, Private Link is something that we can extend out even to our own partnership. So this was a very good you know, way for us to jump into this and get very comfortable with moving things from our internally hosted data centers out into the cloud. Okay. So with that, as sort of, sort of talked about, the data security is tops with private links. So we've implemented this, and we implemented it in about a day. So after we did a little bit of you know, figuring out you know, what endpoints were going to be, what, how we wanted to apply it to security, and I'm not, uh, this isn't a, a, a coordinated sort of slide with everybody else. When we came in, these were some of the things that we found out and matched up very well with the content the rest of the day. It was very simple for us, as I say, within a day to set up a configuration file, publish an endpoint, secure it, and we had data flowing back within our, uh, within our SaaS provider um, into uh, our VPC, okay? So that was a really big point for us. The other point that Jonathan picked up in the end there that we found very true and a big tenet of ours is it had to perform. So not only did I want to secure that data the way that it moved, I wanted to get real comfortable with the SLAs that we have a very long history of hitting. We needed to get real comfortable with that and with this, not traversing out into the public internet. It's all sitting behind, flowing over AWS, VPCs. We've been very happy with where we've, uh, where we've come with that, okay? So let's get into our architecture a little bit. So this is a very simplified single account view of what we've done here. But again, um, we have on the left-hand side, our direct connect into our traditional. So we're sort of in the second half of the 20, the 20 customers that Jonathan described. We're in the middle of picking up everything. We're about a year into it and moving over into our data warehouse with, uh, with our platform as a service with, uh, with Snowflake. So we've connected that through Direct Connect on the backhand right-hand side of this. Uh, you can kind of see that uh, link out to Snowflake that we have out of our availability zones. So in that bottom right half of that picture is exactly where you're going to see where we see additional use cases. We extend it out to our carriers, if it's Expedia, however we want to share data. Not only can we share that data amongst our partners, which is our use case right now. So as we bring on, you know, again, Snowflake, as we bring in other partners that we're going to live uh, to, provide our, or to provide our services within AWS, 
that's how we're going to continue to extend this. We've been very happy with it, and we look to continue to move that on. Okay? So um, with that, I think I hand this back over. All right, to Nick. Come on up. All right, so we're doing on time here. We might have a few minutes. Thank you. So I think that's the content we have. Um, we have a few minutes here. Do you guys want to take questions up here? Sure. Yeah? All right, come on up. These lights are just fantastically bright. Um, so if you can raise your hands sort of, sort of high. Yeah, yeah, it would just be real awkward. Um, who's got questions, anybody? Over here, I think. Okay. Yeah, so the question here, I'll, I'll repeat for the, everyone else, is API Gateway, even if you put it in your own VPC as a private API endpoint, um, it has a public IP address associated with it as a service. And so uh, if, if you still have this private link option, what does that mean? Um, and I'll preface this with, I'm not an API expert. Are you by chance? I can give a shot at it real quick. Well, um, I, can, I can address what we did for Snowflake, because okay, sure. um, you know, specific to Snowflake service, we had that same challenge, right? So there was a public way to access Snowflake, and when you go through private link, that does not replace it, right? It, it, it alters it. Um, so for us, we actually have uh, network policies, IP whitelisting, um, that you can do, and essentially you lock that down to just the IPs that are expected to come through the private link. Um, and that effectively, right, not literally, but effectively cuts off the public access. And I'd say about half our customers are, are choosing to do that when they do private link. Now, not all of them are, because some of them have some workloads that they want to run over private link, maybe the load part, maybe some of the processing on the back end that's automated, the non-human workload. They want that going over private link because that's the majority of where the data is going to flow. But they might then offer you know, limited accounts with limited permissions controlled through identity um, that they will offer all over the public side, and they let that happen as well. right? So there's some customers who have both use cases. So I, I think that ultimately the API is going to have to be responsible for doing that. Private link's a tool, right? It's not a solution to the whole thing. Like I was saying, you have to you have to use all of the tools at your disposal in order to actually solve these problems. Sure, but if you want to come up afterwards, we can I can see because I, I just don't know what the network security controls available to API Gateway specifically are. So we can we can take a look at if you want to come up afterwards. Questions? Well, we got one. That was one more than I predicted. There we go. We got two now. <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, Yes, so the, so the question here is whenever you create an endpoint service and you publish that out to the world, can everyone see those endpoints? Uh, whenever you create the endpoint service, so you create your network load balancer associated with some things, right? And you create the endpoint service. You'll get an endpoint service name. It looks a lot like a DNS name, but it actually isn't. It's just an AWS-specific 
sort of uh, resource name. And so uh, at that point, the only people that can use that service are the people you've given that resource name. So if you put it on the internet, then you might have some people you know, coming asking for you know, permission, which is probably what you want. Um, and if it's not what you want, then you would, have to just, you would have to find out who that person is, and you can whitelist them or, or you know, uh, that kind of thing. But by just creating an endpoint service by itself, it's in no way public. Yeah, and, and just another addition to that, most of the customers that we see adopting this aren't using Route 53 at all, right? So they're actually using DNS that pre-existed in their VPCs. They usually have very complex setups that actually might be hybrid, mixing things both on-prem and uh, in their VPC. And actually, and I think the AWS Resolver is going to solve a bunch of those problems, too. With yeah, no, and, and that, that, that's, I, I have a big note about that myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. So the question is, um, if I have both public and private endpoints for a service, and I do it on the public, um, AWS has you know some protections like Shield. Shield Basic is available for everyone. Um, what sort of protections are available if you do it privately? Um, you know, in that case, that's why there, this stuff is whitelisted. So when you whitelist somebody, there is some sort of trust there. Um, the network load balancer itself is pretty good about those kinds of things because. For example, most DDoS attacks use UDP, which the network load balancer is going to drop. Um, so they'd have to sort of, the attacks you're probably most worried about are application level attacks, you know, um, SQL injection or slow loris or some of the, the weirder TCP, HTTP kind of things, which at that point you probably want to use WAF and some of those other types of functionalities somewhere else in your stack. Um, or maybe just not have them as a customer. <laughs> They're attacking you, right? Um, I mean, sometimes that's not a choice too, right? So, so you can you can layer your security stacks on into private link, you know, either above or or, or around, right? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, it is a private link, then. That's what. <laughs> yeah. ah. So, uh, can you just extend or clarify what was available in terms of how you could log or identify users at the other end of your private link? So if you're offering it to a number of customers, how are you do you want to take that one? Um, well, so there's a couple of different things happening here, right? So first of all, as was stated, every time you're going to do a private link, you have an initiation process. They can't just show up. Well, you know, I'm going to take that back. You could do the whitelist everybody option. I, I, I think that would make you certifiably insane. I don't. I can't imagine a, a SaaS service that would do the whitelist everyone. Um, I've, see, I've seen but, some potential use cases for it. Really? Yeah. That's that scare. That scares me. Yeah. But, uh, so well, like that, for, well, example, if, okay. if for example, if you're an operating system, yeah. you provide operating system code, and you want everyone to be able to access it privately if you want to. Right? Mm. AWS is like that. We whitelist everyone. Everyone that wants the EC2 API in their, EC, in their VPC, that's true. we let them do that. So. My eye twitching again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, 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 for, so for us, right, we have an initiation process, so we know exactly who's coming in every time, and so there's definitely a whitelist that's involved with that, right? But I guess if you're going to do the, the whitelist everybody, then you have you'll, you'll challenges. See, so you'll see the incoming account number as part of the principal mm. that's requesting access. And so yeah. if you'll have to know who that account number is. If there's no way for you to know the account number, then you may have to uh, do some other out-of-band communication. That's on your metadata for the connection every time, or is that for your initial? 
Correct. So whenever the initial connection comes in, yeah. the, the, so the question is, you know, uh, I think we forgot to repeat it was, how, how can you identify the incoming endpoint requests? And so uh, those endpoint requests will have an account number and a principal and uh, a role, I think, as well involved. Um, and so you'll know the IEM principal for that, that account that's trying to come in. There's another question over here, back here. Yep, so the question is, what are, what are the performance characteristics or any bandwidth limits we have to worry about? Uh, the endpoint service itself is basically an extension of the network load balancer. And the network load balancer is a very high performance load balancer. And so you inherit all the uh, performance characteristics of network load balancer. So the, again, in like the load balancer deep dive, they show that they scaled this thing up to you know, 40 gigabits a second. And that's just because we, we, just, that's, we felt like that was high enough to test. We could probably go higher if we want. Um, and it's at like tens of microseconds of latency. So very few applications are going to be sensitive in the tens of microseconds range. And so um, you know, it's, it's more about the load balancing at that point. So it's, for most applications, I, I expect it to be fairly transparent. Question. So there was a roadmap question. We yes. can't answer roadmap questions. If you come up after, we can talk privately or whatnot. We got one over here, too. There's oh, another here. question here. Oops. It was before. Okay. Over here. Yeah, so the questions are on marketplace vanity name. Is there a place to put the wildcard there? Um, I don't think so because we need a specific DNS name to route the traffic to the DNS endpoint. But we should probably talk with the marketplace team to confirm that. Okay. I think we'll do one last question and we've got to wrap here. Yeah, no, I mean, that's 100% that's, that's of the reason that... Oh, repeat the question, please. Oh, the question was, you know, is part of the consideration around private link because you have security-sensitive companies who are nervous about going to the cloud at all? Um, and uh, that's 100% of the reason private link comes up in our conversations now because we have companies who, believe it or not, it's, it's interesting, Snowflake for a lot of companies is their first major foray into the cloud. Right? Maybe they have a SaaS app here and there on the back office side, but on the revenue producing side, they've never done that before. Um, and I would say that's exactly how we got to private link from our use case. So mm -hmm. again, we're not extending it out yet, but we will. Uh, and we needed that way as we were all on-prem, we had to get real comfortable with what we wanted to put there, what we shared, you know, some pretty sensitive data from PII, from PCI, everything else was exactly at the heart of our decision. All right, well, thanks everybody. Um, fill out the surveys, please. And uh, we'll be up here uh, taking questions if you want to ask anything. <laughs>